you might have a title and people might have to comply with what you say to keep their job, but they don't follow you willingly if you lack integrity. They don't follow you willingly if you don't give them a sense that you care about what they want and help them feel connected to the work and get curious about how to support their growth. And those are things that I did experience from some of my leaders. And I definitely try to teach that in the work that I do in the world. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Seth Godin, a long walk and calm conversation are an incredible combination if you want to build a bridge. Our guest today, Haleli Azulai, is an expert on using communication and emotional intelligence to build better talent. She's the founder of Talent Grow, a consulting company that helps develop leaders and teams for enterprises experiencing exponential growth. She's also the author of two books, Employee Development, On a Shoestring, and Strength to Strength, and has worked with great organizations such as PricewaterhouseCoopers, Booz Allen Hamilton, the FDA, and many more. Haleli, welcome. Excited to have you on the Elevated Podcast. I'm so grateful you've invited me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I like to start at the beginning, and I know you moved around quite a bit as a child. Uh, how did that constant change affect your professional values and, and passions and your career in any way? It's really not very easy for a child to move. So I think that at the time I was just trying to do my best to keep floating. And in hindsight, I recognized that it taught me a lot of lessons and shaped a lot of the way in which I approach life. One of the things is that, you know, people that stay put in, in the same place can build long relationships with people and connections that go deep. And I actually, I always envy that. To, of people who have it, I never was able to because I always came in, I had to start from scratch, I had to build a network, I had to learn to connect with people, I was always the outsider, I didn't exactly fit in, I didn't get their inside lingo and their inside mm -hmm. jokes and all the stories. And then once I figured it out and I got connected and then I would move again and have to start from scratch. So I definitely think that it taught me about the value of connecting with people, that it is important and that it is something that you can effortfully do. But it taught me also how important it is to stay connected, even though I, I couldn't. And I have to say that when I grew up, you know, in the 70s and early 80s is when all the moving was happening. We didn't have social networking as a way to stay yeah. easily connected. And oh my gosh, my life probably would have been so much different if I had that, I think. Yeah, I think about, you know, summer camp, someone came for a summer and you were friends with them and they didn't come back and you just kind of knew that was the last time you were ever going to see them again. There wasn't yeah. really an easy way to to stay in touch. So what, what was the cause of all the the moves? Was it military families? Sounds almost like it or, or no? Yeah, it started as a military family and then it actually became a business family. And my my dad, who was a major influence in my life, definitely he was the kind of person who believed in pursuing opportunities and taking risks, you know, calculated risks, but not afraid to change. So I think it caused him to grow fast. And a lot of times that kind of growth and, and then an opportunity comes along and he would decide to go for it. It involved often a move. 
But, you know, I think also as a value when I was just speaking about it, I didn't mention that I'm lucky that we have a very strong knit uh, family, you know, so my core family always stayed connected. And also my extended family when I was first, when I was growing up, up until age 12, I was growing up in Israel. And Israel is a pretty small place. So moving around, we weren't far from any other place, but I was able to stay connected to my extended family as well until when I was 12. I our big move was across the ocean and, and from Israel to the U.S. At that point, that also became a challenge because not only was I ripped from my social network of friends, but I was also kind of taken away from seeing my grandparents every week and seeing my aunts and uncles once a month and knowing all of my second and third cousins and all of that. So family is, is super important and helped me sustain, I guess, you know, my sanity, knowing that I have a close-knit family that I can rely on and I didn't really need as much but beyond them for my day-to-day uh, feeling of belonging. So what was your, what did you focus on early in your career? When, when I was a teenager, I had no earthly idea what I was supposed to do. And, and then when I had to pick, like, what do I want to study in college? This was, this was like, how are you supposed to even make that kind of a decision? I don't even know why we make kids do that. Um, so I, what, what I wanted to be was a dancer, by the way. And I never pursued it. It's like my one regret in life. I never even tried. And the reason is because I was not enough of a risk taker and not courageous enough to go with it, even though there was a lot of chances of that I wouldn't make it. And even though the advice from my parents was, that's probably not a good career move. You should do something else. And I, and I kind of conformed to that yeah. advice and didn't try something different. So my dad was like, well, you're good with, you know, you're good with ideas and you're good with explaining things and you're good with language. Maybe you should do marketing. You know, you would kind of like that. And, you know, understanding people's psychology and how to talk to them and how to get them to do things. And I was like, okay, that sounds intriguing. And I picked business and business school and I actually was in a very competitive university and it was hard to get into the business school in the first two years or weed out years. And I got through that. And two weeks after I finally was accepted into the business school at University of Maryland, I changed my major to communication because I was like, ah, I hate this. I hate everything about that business school. No, this is not the career for me. So I went with communication and I studied that. And then I discovered there is this thing called intercultural communication. It was fascinating to me, obviously connected my, my history like, oh yeah, no wonder it's not just language that you need in order to connect to other people. There's a lot more about underlying norms of behavior and people using kind of different codes of conduct and having to translate across that is how you connect and communicate effectively. So, um, and then I took a year to work after undergrad and that was not satisfying. So I went back into college for my grad work and picked intercultural communication training and development, which I discovered was a thing. And I also was teaching at the University of Maryland while getting my full-time degree at the time. So I learned about curriculum design and I learned about teaching and I learned about, I didn't want to go into academia now that I saw what it's like and thought that would have been a career choice. So kind of a long story, I sort of fell into the training and development field and I just started with my first job. I I just started as a training assistant at a financial services company and then just progressively got promoted from there until I found myself being the manager of the training department, which I've grown. And that's how it started. And and you eventually decided to start your own firm, uh, Talent Grow. I'm curious, what was the biggest, like what was the most important leadership development principles you learned kind of before you started to go on your own? What had you seen 
sort of in your years of training and, and working in other organizations before? I think I was very lucky that I never really had a nightmare manager or leader to work for. I, you know, again, I'm, I'm uh, you know, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, who, who I know are great leaders who just point to that nightmare manager as the yeah. anchor point of the inverse of what they want to be. So a lot, yeah. a lot for a lot of people, it's been very, very motivating. Yeah. I mean, it definitely <laughs> teaches you a lot of things, but I, I had bad ones, but I, I also had great ones. So I, had the lessons from that, you know, sort of don't do this, do that. And I saw also, so the thing that was sort of the the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, or the tipping point where I started to formulate the idea of I, I need to work for myself. And, and what's good leadership is that I experienced a lack of an ethical backbone and a lack of integrity. And for me, it highlighted that that values, you know, and helping people connect to values and also knowing your own values and demonstrating them, you know, walking the talk are, are super important to me. And I confronted that a few times when I was, it was clear to me, I value integrity as my number one value. And I am not willing, I am not willing to just put my head down and do what it takes to keep my job at the cost of not having integrity. So I would say for me as a person, and also I think for leaders, it is a super important value. And I believe that people will follow leaders. You know, I, in my business, I kind of say my tagline is that I develop leaders that people actually want to follow. You know, you, you might have a title and people might have to comply with what you say to keep their job, but they don't follow you willingly if you lack integrity, they don't follow you willingly. If you don't give them a sense that you care about what they want and help them feel connected to the work and get curious about how to support their growth. And those are things that I did experience from some of my leaders. And I definitely try to teach that in the work that I do in the world. So I'm curious, how do you define integrity? Is there a standard definition or is it really staying in line with one's personal integrity, which is different for each person? Yeah, because there's, a, you know, I think integrity and ethics are, are kind of connected, but... There's, and it's really, and, then, and when I would say there's cultural implications, like what is yeah. seen as integral in one culture is very unintegral in another. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. So... I guess the short answer is I don't think that there is necessarily one definition, but right. how I see it is the difference between, you know, ethics, ethics is uh, organizational standards, right. Or cultural standards or yep. policies and procedures and that kind of stuff and law and integrity is, is inside. It's uh, being a person of your word and, and doing what's right and doing it even when no one is watching and doing what you said you'll do. In my opinion, that's integrity, right? Um, but I, I agree with you because, for example, there are some cultures where, let's say, telling a lie is never integrity. And in some cultures, sometimes telling a lie in service of something else, like in service right, protecting of... protecting family. Yeah, family. Yeah, the family or the organization or something like that is acceptable. Yeah. Um, so you're right. It can shift based on, on culture. And, and there, it's really just integrity of the highest value. And in those cultures, you know, the highest value is whatever that, that is that says that if you lie to the outsider, you're still holding the highest value up. Right. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time. 
and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. HBR.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. So some large companies hire you to help them with their talent development. What, what are some of the core principles that you and your organization teach or work with those companies on developing? Yeah. You know how people say that people leave a bad manager. They don't leave a job. They leave yes. a bad manager. Well, I think technically they don't leave a company because a job is probably very, oh. very related to your bad manager, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you might, but you might leave a department within a company, certainly Absolutely. also yeah. because of a bad manager, right? I mean, you yeah. try to get away from that. And, you you know, we talked about it just by by your earlier question. We learn a lot from bad managers yeah. too, you know, and we, and we get a sense of like, this is not right. So I, I think that's true, but... I have a bias to thinking that most humans are good and well-meaning. You know, I'm kind of one of those idealistic kind of people. I don't think that humans are, you know, terrible, awful scum and that look to take advantage of people. So I think that there's a lot of bad managers that never wanted to be a bad manager. Some of them have no idea that they're a bad manager. And some never wanted to be a manager. Some never right. wanted. Well, of course, that's part of the story. So yeah. some, they didn't want to be a manager. They certainly didn't want to be a bad manager. They might not even know they're a bad manager, right? And so a lot of people are being a bad manager, either unbeknownst to themselves or just because they don't know better. They're like asymptomatic carriers of, yeah. of bad management. It could be. Are they just because they don't have the awareness but, and they don't have the skills? Okay, so there's three things they could not have. They could not have the skills, they could not have the awareness, or no one could have told them, right? Or the safety wasn't graded to tell them. Is is that part of the equation? To tell them what? They're a bad manager. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, right? 
I mean, because you know that to make any change, any significant change is really hard. But if you have no awareness that you need to make the change, you're never going to do it. I mean, inertia is not going to make you change for the better. There's also another paradox, and, and we've dealt with this organization, and, and Liz Wiseman, who I just uh, spoke to mm. uh, for the podcast, brought this up. She started Oracle University, and, and she said this pretty directly. She was like, new managers are bad managers, <laughs> for the most part. And, and in any organization that's growing and promoting people and putting them into, into position, it, it's a great thing on one hand, but then you have a lot of high-risk managers on another. Well, yeah. I mean, it creates so many different problems, this kind of part of the story. So think about that. I mean, for the organization to have a bunch of bad managers running around, and again, if we say they're bad managers, but they're not bad people, right? I mean, I mean, there are definitely some of them. Some people are bad and they do it on purpose. How about poorly rated managers? Yeah, yeah. poorly yeah. rated <laughs> or, you know, unskilled and so on. Well, it creates a huge number of ripple effects that affect everyone. So the person under them is suffering. They're seeking to escape. Um, the organization starts to lose great talent. And in fact, they lose that manager was great talent when they were promoted, usually, right? Most people who are managers were not brought in from the outside as a specialized manager. They were usually really great at whatever technical thing they were doing, and then suddenly they're at the top of the team or at the top of the department. And then sometimes they continue to just escalate them, you know, and elevate them, even if they're not actually meriting it from a management skill perspective. And now this is endemic to the entire organization. And it can create a culture. So it is really important for organizations to get this straight. But so many organizations have this policy or stated or unstated of, uh, you know, just sort of learn by going, you know, like throw them off the cliff and see if they can fly. And sometimes people do this, they, they become bad managers because they've had bad examples. And I think that this policy is sometimes also maybe unintentionally promoted because people that are at the top are often the high achievers, the go-getters, the self-starters. So they might have done that and it might have worked okay. Although again, back to that story of they might not realize that they're doing a terrible job because maybe no one is telling them. Yeah. And oftentimes, aren't they, I believe that behavior follows incentives. So they might be being rewarded for their production and not their management, mm -hmm. right? Which is the wrong way to look at a manager. A hundred percent. And then, you know, companies ignore that. There may be the leader of the leaders who thinks this is fine because again, they themselves, this is how, you know, it's that whole, well, that's how I came up the ranks. I just figured it out, you know, and I just made it happen. And it doesn't work as well. It's not as efficient. And it certainly doesn't create any kind of organizational standard approaches, right? And, and best practices. And you know this really well from the kind of work you've done in your organization. When you build intentional cultures, you're much more likely to succeed than when you have cobbled together things that people do because that's what they look around and they watch how other people act and then they do the same. So it's rewarded, right? You have yeah. one by default or by design. That's right. Yeah. So. I work with organizations to help them be strategic and intentional about how they develop leaders so that there are less of these bad managers causing good employees to leave, causing good organizations to have bad cultures and, and poor performance. What's a typical reaction when someone is told that they are a bad manager? <laughs> well, there's a couple of different styles, right? Right, maybe not typical. So what are the reactions? Yeah. What are the archetypes? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't tell people they're a bad manager. I mean, that's, right. I think coaches can do that, right? So yeah. if you have a coach, they're skilled at how to help people get self-awareness without crushing their 
their confidence or destroying their ego. And this is an important skill. And I would definitely suggest building that internally and out and with outside help. Um, but that awareness, man, it's so for some people, there's, it's kind of like going through the, the stages of, uh, of, uh, change and, yeah. and shock and mourning, right? Like you first, you're in, in denial yeah. Yeah. or then you start blaming like, well, it's those people. They're out to get me. You know, they're, they're trying to make me look bad. They, they, they want my job They're whatever. So some people have that and some people can come out of it into the next stages and some people get stuck in that. So it's important to help them as much as possible, but also notice what's happening and, and also just make space for it. I mean, that's normal. It's bad news, right? It, it hurts. Right. I, I do believe intent that most people intend to be good, to be good managers, to be good people, to not hurt others. And it's, it's really shocking to learn that you make people suffer without intending to. And it's hard. And, and so I know you've described yourself as a bridge builder. In terms of the work you do and the type of training, you know, how does that apply and how do you teach other people to build bridges? Because I assume a big part of this is how people connect with their team and reach out to their team and get the feedback they need and open the these channels of communication. Yeah. I use that metaphor because it dawned on me that it was sort of like this this underlying metaphor of, of the lessons I've learned in my life, you know, like even from my very early years, always kind of being not an insider. You know, I was always this outsider coming in and trying to fit in to an extent and always noticing that in there's that the inside culture uh, that I was an outsider to. So I saw that on a local level, just moving from different communities. I saw that as a person who moved across a different country and, you know, those cultures. And then I noticed that in the workplace, there's such diversity, right? There's so many different ways of seeing things. And even just this conversation with a manager or a leader who doesn't realize how they're affecting others. You know, you know your own story inside of you, but sometimes you're not aware and maybe not curious enough to understand, well, how you meant it is not how it landed. So that and my skill in, in understanding communication in general is to teach people that you, your job every day and everything you do, but inside your family, inside your home, in your relationships with friends and work, in politics and everything. It's conveying what seems obvious or easy to you to someone who sees it differently or understands it differently or may even prefer something very different. So it's that bridging between yourself and others that is really, it's done through communication. But it also is done through that intention. So that, that intention is part of emotional intelligence, I would say. You know, it's that realization. Emotional intelligence starts with awareness, but it also requires more than just awareness. Awareness by itself is not sufficient. It also requires an effort. So it's knowing enough to say what's obvious to me is not obvious to them. What I think is right is not necessarily how they see it. And assuming that I'm right and they're an idiot because they see it differently is not going to get you very far in life. Because often there may be two different ways to see the same thing that are still true in reality and objective reality. And you may be seeing things wrong and they could help you stop making a mistake. And so having that humility of I have an opportunity to connect with someone else, not with the assumption of how do I shove my understanding down their throat, but how do I understand what they understand 
so that I have the option now of seeing things differently so that I can rationally choose to do something with that, which means I may still think I'm right and I can help explain it to them in a more effective way or because I understand what, what they think. Or I may change my mind because they're right and I'm wrong. Or there may be some third way, right? There may be some way to create a, a, a win-win outcome that satisfies their needs, that satisfies my needs, that doesn't look like anything either one of us could have predicted earlier before this conversation, but now seems possible through this kind of effortful work together to build a bridge to say, ah, there's, there's a third way, there's another idea, there's another way, and neither one of us has to lose. It's a really interesting point, and I think about it a lot because... I don't know when I started doing this, but and and for me, it's really almost like a, a curiosity. But I I know it's so easy to be like, there's for someone to look at something like I can't possibly understand their point of view or how they could look at it. I, I've actually learned to try to put myself in the other shoes and be like, let me let I actually want to understand this because I think it's part of finding the solution is to, how can I identify with their, it's kind of like what they would teach you with debate, right? Mm -hmm. how, how, how can I identify with the opposite point of view here? Because if I understand that, if we dig in, we're not going to get anything. But if I understand that, then there's probably that opportunity to build a bridge. And, and you know, we're, we're, it's very politically divided today and stuff too. Mm -hmm. I'm actually surprised that people don't if you're if you're polling or you're a strategist, rather than dismissing a large group of people that hold some opinion, it would be really important to understand why they like what what caused them to hold that opinion so deeply. I, I actually think you would be better off, even for your own selfish objective, to try to put yourself in their shoes, if even then to figure out how you wanted to disarm that. Yes, yeah. I, I and a couple of friends of mine who, who are very successful at this and, and kind of teach people persuasion, um, this is exactly what they say. And so many people just get so entrenched in their own perspective. And then they resort to just, you know, yelling, like, you didn't understand me. Let me yell it louder at you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. or let me get into power so I can force it on you. But if we really want understanding and if we really want change, as you said, even if I want to be better at making them change. Right. If I'm, if I'm a political strategist and, and I'm trying to win, I'd almost be better off, you know, spending two days putting all of my team into their mindset and yes. figure out why it is they believe that yeah. and, and, and how to neutralize that than to discount those beliefs. That's right. If a good way to, you know, a good trick that you can use is really, if you want to influence anyone, is practice and under, be good at arguing for their side. Yeah. You know, if, if you can articulate that, right? Uh, yeah, th there's a very simple thing that clearly all the customer service and the airlines have, have been trained by someone, you know, like you in that industry to do, <laughs> which is now when you complain about it, they just repeat the thing back to you. So yeah. like, Mr. Glazer, I'm really, uh, we, I'm re I understand that you're frustrated that all three of your flights were canceled and, you were, yeah. and you're like, oh, they understand me. Like, yes. and it's just... It's just kind of an NLP trick, but it works. Yeah, oh, it's, and it's called empathy, right? Because yeah. you're, you said put yourself in the other person's shoes. So it means you understand how they see it and you can empathize, you know, empathize and sympathize are two different things. So you can empathize, which means you can see how they feel. You know, you can understand their feeling. It doesn't mean you have to agree with their feeling. Right. But it, you can at least understand what they're feeling in a way that you can articulate that back to them. And 
a year ago, it was one of the highlights of, of my life that I spoke at the same conference as Oprah. And she's, you know, she's one of my idols. I mean, she's definitely not a perfect human, but she's achieved so many great things and does really great work. One of the points that she made in her keynote was, you know, really struck me. She said that in all of the years that she has been interviewing people of all walks of life, you know, Oprah, I mean, the biggest world leaders, controversial people, business leaders to, you know, a mom from the suburbs to everybody in between. She said that there was a theme, a thread that was always in all of their interviews. And she would see them where they would sit across from her and they would say something. And then they would ask her, how did I do? Did I do okay? Was that okay? And she said, people need validation. People want validation. So when you said that about the customer service rep, oh, they get me. Like, it's such a core need. And we're not, I don't think we're consciously aware of it. But in you know, because we're a social animal and there's a lot of really cool science coming out, you know, cognitive science and neuroscience that shows this, it's biologically rigged into us to be validated and accepted by others so that we can feel safe. Because as social creatures, when we feel threatened, when we feel like the outsider, when we feel like the person who I'm talking with doesn't get me, doesn't understand me, or I don't understand them, then it makes this situation risky and I feel threatened. And when I feel threatened, this is part of what I teach people, when I feel threatened and if I'm significantly threatened, my brain kicks into a very unproductive kind of mode, you know, that doesn't help in relationships. It doesn't help in productivity. It doesn't help in anything. And, and that mode of, you know, I'm connect, I'm working here with someone who is on the different side and doesn't get me. And it's just from the other tribe. And now they're going to do something to me to hurt me. And your brain gets into that really ancient mode of fight or flight, which makes you super uncreative. You don't see solutions to problems very easily. You become pessimistic. You get tunnel vision, like awful, terrible things that don't produce good results for relationships and business. So how can we minimize triggering that in other people? That is a skill that we can learn. It's still not easy, but if you have an awareness that this stuff happens and an acceptance, like you're not going to fight it, it's in your biology and it happens in milliseconds before you can even have a single rational thought with your neocortex. Um, then you can understand, well, what are some of the things that can trigger that kind of a reaction? And how can I try not to booby trap, not to step into the booby traps, right? How can I avoid doing that to people so that I don't put them and me into that mode that doesn't help us move forward? Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash elevate. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I, I'm thinking about doing this in a leadership team meeting next time people are are divided is maybe ask them to argue the, yes. the the opposite case. Oh, that would be great. I haven't done that. That actually would be really interesting. I'd love for you to report <laughs> back. That sounds exciting. I, I will report back on that. <laughs> so I know you're always doing some research. Are anything you're working on? Uh, any future books that you have planned? You know, I think that the short answer is no future books at the moment. I don't know why, but I don't have a motivation to write books at the moment. I've really enjoyed podcasting. You know, it's you just great. want to you just want to get outside. <laughs> well, I, I want to get for sure, but I also really love talking to people better than yeah. researching and writing on my own. It's a very kind of like a solitude kind of engagement. And also, yeah. once you have a book out, it's also still kind of you know, like you put it out there, and then it's asynchronous, and you don't really meet the people who are reading, and you don't really know what they're thinking, and that's not as satisfying to me as connecting with people. And this is why I'm, I like the virtual communication, but I yeah. thrive on in-person. I just love speaking with people and, and seeing either seeing the light bulb go on as a result of having done my work effectively or seeing the confused look on their face, knowing that I have a chance now to explain this differently <laughs> or to try to get through to them through some other metaphor or something else like that. I, I need that. That's my fuel. It yeah. energizes me. So, yeah, I, I haven't been very motivated to do the hard... It's very hard to write a book, as you know. Very yeah. hard. Well, I actually, I mean, it's hard writing a book, but the discussion I've been having with a lot of people is that, you know, the marketing of the book is equal or as much work as yes. writing the book. Yes, which many authors don't even realize. Like, oh, yeah. now you've written a book. Now get ready for the hard work. Yeah. They call me two weeks before they're about to launch. Like, what do I do to market the book? And it's like, <laughs> start six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. So, um, but I always research, I, I have to say that, um, you know, I, I'm always very, very intrigued by anything neuroscience. I, I find that fascinating. It's amazing that, you know, there, there's been great teachers of leadership and communication for, for decades. But I think that all of the work that they did before was really just sort of through observation, trial and error. But now we have this cool stuff that comes out where people get hooked up to fMRI machines that map their brain and see where things light up based on what reaction to what stimulus. And then how does that work? And how do you calm that down? I mean, 
cool, right? So we have a scientific way to explain the stuff that we've been noticing. So more and more and more is coming out from that field, which is a relatively new field in science. And I, you know, so I guess I'm just sort of kind of, if I could go back, I, I would study that probably in school. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I would study if I could go back. Yes. Now, but once you know what you want to do, then then you you realize a lot of the things that that you missed. Yeah, there's always time. You can do it now. Always time. Yeah. <laughs> but now there's more stuff I need to learn, so yeah. uh, it just piles up. All right, last question, and this can be singular or repeated. But what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? Oh, God, I learned from, I mean, we learn from mistakes. Mistakes are great teachers. And I've made so very many. <laughs> I guess, you know, I kind of mentioned the the one regret I have taught me a great lesson about regret and about decision making. And like I, I when I was a teenager and I wanted to be a dancer, I had really clear signs from, from my soul, I guess, or whatever. Like that, that was what brought me alive. I loved it. I just felt like I was in flow. And it's all I wanted to do. And having such strong, clear signs is something means, it means you shouldn't just forsake it, right? And squander it. And I did. I mean, I completely squandered it. And my gosh, you know, I, I really regret that. I mean, we just said it's always, there's always time. Well, you know, being a professional dancer is a youth oriented thing. So you kind of have a little, you know, a short window of opportunity that closes and then you can just sort of be an elderly dance teacher or something like that. It's just not the same. So I learned a lot from, from that, from the pain of the regret. And I think that I see it all the time that so many people play it small. So many people are too afraid to do things that, that their inside signs tell them they want to do or that they should do, but the outside world tells them it's too risky or it's too dangerous or even just the gremlins inside their head. And there are so many ways, I've, and I've tried to teach that to people, you know, there's so many ways that you can build small C courage where, you know, it's not like you're going to go run into a burning building and risk your life to save someone. I mean, it's the going, you feel scared and you still do it. And if it doesn't work out, you can learn from it. And what's the worst that can happen? Like you're not going to die. You're not going <laughs> to die from that mistake. No one will die from that mistake, but it'll give you a chance to realize the positive part that you're seeking or to learn something about the next time you take a, a risk. Like those are valuable things and you're forsaking it because you're afraid and you're playing it small because of that. And I, it just crushes me. I, I feel so sad when I see it and I try so hard to help people not do that. So I would say it taught me a lot. Um, and I guess if I could go into a little tangential story, I, sure. I am not a woo-woo person. I, I am very much like objective reality kind of person. Like, you know, I'm not spiritual, I'm like spiritual. Spirits don't appear to me and all that. But, you know, one could say if I were a spiritual person, I would say that karma came back to give me a gift. And my younger son, from age seven, became obsessed with skateboarding, obsessed with skateboarding and skill building to, you just don't believe how well, how much he would practice over and over things to learn and is really good, like talented and works hard. When he was a teenager, um, he, he's 18 now, almost eight, 19, uh, he, he did not enjoy high school. <laughs> he was not very academically inclined and loved skateboarding. And he came to us and said, I'm wasting my time sitting in school and I want to be a professional skateboarder. Now, this does this sound a little bit like maybe, you know, a weird conversation that sounds like mine with my dad's and I want yeah. to be a professional dancer. It's like, oh, great. Now what do I do? Because I want to answer him just like my dad. Well, that's not a practical career. 
and what's the chances you're going to succeed in that? And you're not going to be able to make money with it. You should. So we did it first, like we didn't mean to, but we were like, well, you know, school's really important. And so, you know, we understand we want to support your professional skateboarding career, but, you know, school's like plan B. And he said, so let me get this straight. You want me to spend all of these hours every day sitting in school and then coming home for two or three hours doing homework, working on plan B, and then I don't have enough daylight hours to work on plan A. And I was like, dang, that kid is, he's freaking logical. How can you say no to that? So long story short, he came to us and asked to be homeschooled or to do some kind of like remote school or to do something that allows him to use his daytime hours to practice. And it was the hardest decision that my spouse and I had to make in recent years, but we agonized over it. And the thing that helped us understand how to make this decision, I I blogged about this and I podcasted about this too, um, is what happens if he doesn't make it because we forced him to stay, you know, like this is again, that window then, of then he's writing papers and talking to his therapist yeah, and all that. Exactly. Stuff Forever. Like, we, yeah. it would be our fault that we didn't help him. Yeah. And what would be the worst if he tried it yeah. and then it didn't pan out for whatever reason? Well, he'll still be 20, whatever, and he can still go to college and he'll know what he wants to do and it'll be self-motivated and he'll figure it out. It's not the end of the world. So which is worse? And look, there's a generation of people with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that went to college and didn't know what they wanted to do that would tell you right now that they wish they did not do that. Of course. And I actually am a big believer that we send people to college that who have no business going to college yeah. at the age that they do and with the knowledge that they have about where they want to go. Yeah, we could start a whole new podcast episode just on that. Yeah. And unfortunately, if their parents are in a position to pay for it, then there is a lot more flexibility that, that they have, you know, from picking the wrong thing or wanting to do something or otherwise, it's sort of the burden is on their parents then, yeah. then if they borrowed a quarter of a million dollars to do that. Right. Because then they mortgage their life and they lose right. the opportunity to make choices. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, um, he, so my son Guy was lucky that he had parents who, who agree with you and what you just said. Like, we don't think that you have to go to college no matter what. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, we see other parents who are like that. Like, I, don't talk to me about any of your choices or your ideas or what you want. You're going to college whether you like it or not. You must. <laughs> we don't believe that. Neither one of us believes yeah. that. So he was lucky enough that we were able to be open and flexible enough to consider alternatives. And when we saw it through the regret lens, it clarified yeah. the decision. And so he did. He, after sophomore year of, of high school inside of the institution, we found a program that was actually tailored uh, for child actors and child singers and child athletes. And um, he did the schoolwork on his own time and um, did the skating when he needed to. And he graduated from high school. His grades improved. He's happy. He's working on becoming a pro. Just um, the biggest um, skateboarding magazine just featured a video that has, you know, his clips in it. Like he's, I, I hope he makes it. And whatever happens, I know that he'll at least try it. And I, I, so I had got a second chance to do that. It won't be on you. It'll be <laughs> my way of fixing it. So, so I meant to ask you, so do you still dance or have you taken up anything with that? Um, it's hard to do the dancing I like to do, which yeah. I didn't mention, but I was a ballroom dancer and that was kind of weird in the 80s. So it's hard to do because my spouse doesn't dance as well as me and doesn't enjoy it as much as, as I. So a partner style of dancing is not as easy yeah. to, to do that way. But I have, yes, I have done dancing. And when I do, 
it's so clear. Oh my God, this nur- this nourishes my soul. Yeah. So, but it also sometimes makes me cry because I I just feel so sad for the loss, you know. Well, maybe your your learning will cause you know your son to be an international skateboard sensation. I hope that for him. Great. Well, how can people learn more about you and your work? Talentgrow.com is where everything lives. That's where I describe the work that I do with organizations, helping them develop leaders that people actually want to follow. I also have my my blog there, my podcast, The Talent Grow Show, which I would love for your listeners to check out if they want to get some uh, additional insights that help them become better leaders and communicators. And I'm so, on social media, either Halali Azulai or, or Talent Grow, Talent Grow Show could probably see me everywhere. The unique thing about having a name like mine is I'm the only one on Google with my name. So I have to keep things pretty clean and squeaky. So <laughs> that, that's a claim that not a lot of people can make. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find me easily if you, if you even try. I'd love to connect. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Uh, you, have, you have a great story and you bring really interesting perspective to the talent development field. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Bob, thanks. Great. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Haleli and her work and what the stuff that she mentioned on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love to ask for your support. Uh, very easy to do with a rating or review on iTunes. It only takes a second. Uh, You can select the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom and leave your rating or review. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.